Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. The end of my second full week presenting a show on Times Radio. Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. You can get us on the app, online or on DAB radio. Uh, packed show today, though. We were talking about shops and pubs and uh, retail stores and cafes and circuses. We had Dr Hayes from the Circus of Horrors talking about why circuses need a bailout alongside the arts. Uh, we had the comedian Pierre Novelli taking a look back at the week in politics. Uh, we had an awards ceremony. Uh, we announced the winners of two Orwell Prizes. Congratulations to Ian Birrell and the Times' very own Janice Turner. Congratulations to them both. But our big event today was my interview with William Hague, the former Tory leader, former Foreign Secretary, uh, covering a huge amount of ground. Uh, he warned against a second economic lockdown. We talked about Rishi Sunak, who replaced him as Tory MP for Richmond in Yorkshire. Uh, we talked China and his disagreements with George Osborne on siding up with China uh, five years ago. Uh, we also discussed what he's been doing during lockdown while he's been holed up in Wales. He's been planting quite a lot of trees. We also talked about how he once described David Cameron as the sanest person to lead the Tory party. Uh, and I asked him how he thought Boris Johnson compared on the sanity scales. So this is my interview with William Hague on Times Radio. Don't forget you can listen to my show Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, but now here it is. Uh, now then, everyone is very excited about Rishi Sunak uh, and his meal deal this morning. It's all over the papers. He's been uh, touring the TV and radio studios. He was on Breakfast with Stick and Asthma earlier on. But Rishi Sunak wouldn't even be in the Commons were it not for my next guest. William Hague stood down as MP for Richmond in Yorkshire in 2015, clearing the way for an unknown hedge fund founder to become MP and five years later, of course, become Chancellor. William Hague left the Commons after four years as Foreign Secretary and a year as Commons Leader, and now sits in the Lords, of course, as Lord Hague. And he joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, now, obviously, we've got a lot. I'm really keen to talk to you about what's happening around the world, enjoying on your time as uh, Foreign Secretary, Britain's place in the world and all that. But I feel like we should start with the news that's all over the, the front of the papers today and the man of the moment, Rishi Sunak. Um, when you first met Rishi, when he was bidding to be the candidate in your old seat. Do you, did you think he'd go far? Yes, I must say, I did think he would go far. He was, he was very impressive from the beginning. Um, he wasn't the... He wasn't known in Yorkshire, you know, people weren't expecting him to come along. But as soon as they met him in the, in the Richmond Conservative Association to begin with, and then the voters in the Richmond constituency... They were enormously impressed. So, uh, yes, we, we all did expect him to go far, perhaps not this far so quickly, of course, to be Chancellor in five years. Uh, but there's a great deal of, of pride in him and the job that he's doing in Yorkshire, and I must say I share that. Just one thing I would differ from in your, your nice introduction, Matt, is that I think he would be an MP, even if I hadn't stood down. <laughs> He'd have I found a seat somewhere else. Given all his abilities, would have been selected somewhere else if the uh, Richmond seat hadn't been available. Um, but he's really applied himself to that constituency. You know that he's not. He's, uh, the fact that he's become such a um, senior politician so quickly doesn't detract in any way from the work he does locally. I, I've never seen anybody get so stuck in so quickly to local issues of agriculture, tourism, and so on, and all, all the issues for the for North Yorkshire. Yeah, I mean, literally with agriculture, I've read stories about him. You know getting up early to help milk the cows and all that sort of thing. But it wasn't, it wasn't completely without um, resistance, was it? I mean, the, the, there have been various stories about him encountering racism when he first uh, arrived in the seat. Did you, did you pick up that resistance too? 
Well, I think um, I, th I think it's impossible to um, rule that out. You know, I, 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 there could well have been some of that. Clearly, there wasn't. It wasn't in any way decisive because the he was overwhelmingly the choice of the of, of the local association. Um, so uh, they were just they were absolutely focused on what his abilities were, and all credit to them that the, they showed not the slightest sign of discrimination or any problem. Um, and I think locally in the constituency, more broadly than the Conservative Party, he did have a bit of a rough ride to begin with, but it's hard to separate out how different that would have been from anybody else. You know, they give everybody a rough ride to begin with. They gave <laughs> me a rough ride to begin with because I wasn't from the right bit of Yorkshire uh, when I was elected in a by-election in 1989. And, uh, yeah, Rishi, had, he had some extra candidates stood against him, you know, so he had to fight a bit hard in his first election in 2015, and he fought it like it was a marginal seat. Now, the, what is really interesting is that in the, um, uh, within the two general elections since then, he's had an absolute landslide majority. You know, he's, uh, Richmond has gone straight back to being one of the best conservative seats in the country with this fantastic local support. So if there was any... Um, undertone of, of racism in the initial reaction, it's completely gone now. And I think that's, um, that's a, a good sign for this country. So he's able to tur uh, turn in a, a landslide when he needs to. Do you think he's got what it takes to be Prime Minister? Well, I don't, that's one of those trick questions, isn't it? Uh, where, um, you know, it sounds like a fair question, but really then it, it's, um, you know, we all get accused of talking somebody up as prime minister too early. We, we've got a prime minister who's just been elected in his own land. Slide in, um, in December, and I think Rishi would be the first to say it's far too early to talk about things like that. Has he got fantastic potential for the future? Yes, he has. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's far too early to say um, who's going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. And I think it's always a bit unfair on ministers who do a really good job, actually, that they, they immediately get talked up as a... <laughs> As a future prime, what are they meant to do? Are they meant to do an incompetent job? Yes, to, to avoid to avoid being talked. Okay, well, let's talk. About, you know, to to not be the person who, for a while, is talked about as the inevitable future leader. And I think they all know that a lot of people have held the office of the next prime minister uh, <laughs> far more decade. far more than then go on to hold the actual yeah. office of prime yes. minister so let's exactly. talk let's talk about his day job then as as chancellor of the exchequer you've said in the past that a big test for chancellors has been the uh, the res their resolve in resisting runaway spending in bad economic times do you think he's rishi's currently passing that test I think so. I mean, this is a, a, we hope it's a unique time. It's a, certainly unique so far in our lifetimes. And I think having this massive um, government response in terms of the furlough scheme and, and other things that he was announcing yesterday is absolutely the right thing to do. Um, you can already see, of course, the, the pressure to do even more, that people start to think there is just an infinite amount of money um, and uh, you, you see the demands from the Labour Party and others yeah, so to, to go still further, uh, to have more support for particular sectors in the economy, you know, that it's not specific um, enough to, to particular sectors. 
So I think the Chancellor is already having to resist some of that pressure. Do you but think it's gone too the far? the moment for absolutely exceptional government spending? Well, yes, it is. And I think uh, obviously there is a consensus about that. It sounds like you're, you think he might be at the outer limits of what he should be doing. Are you worried that it's going too far? Well, no, I'm not at the moment worried that it's going too far. I would be worried if we had to do it again. You know, and I think that is the that is the problem coming up. That um, you can take this once, this hundreds of billions of pounds extra, but it is a one-off thing to be able to do. Uh, you can't then next year have another lockdown of the same severity. Um, then you would get to the limits of what the of what any country can finance, even with very low interest rates and, and good credit rating. So this is why it's so important to make sure that even against a virus that can come back so quickly, as we're, as we're seeing now in, in Melbourne or Tokyo and, and in the United States in particular, we can't have another lockdown. And um, a, that a, at all, do you think this of, um, of testing uh, for the future of mass testing and the ability to detect early on a second wave of the virus? Do you think that the lockdown that we had was too long and too severe and the, the economic impact has just been too great? Well, I, don't, I, I think having got to the point we got to in March, there had to be a lockdown. So no, I, I, I think it's... Um, uh, we can't then say it was too long or too severe. It's good to come out of it as fast as we safely can because the damage, the economy to mental health, to cancer care, so many other aspects of health, it mounts up much more quickly, I think, than, than people were at first uh, realising when we went into lockdown. But uh, would it have been better to have been able not to go into such a tight lockdown? Well, yeah, yeah, of course it would. Um, but that, that's, um, you know, uh, uh, it's too late to, to do that. Now, countries that were more advanced, more ambitious in their testing, such as Germany, um, or countries that were ready for this type of pandemic in South Korea or Taiwan were able to have less severe lockdowns. Now, what I'm saying is, um, whatever we've had to do already, recognize we can't do this again. And um, therefore, learn rapidly from those other countries about testing. And the, the next big challenge, as I see it in testing, is um, uh, the, the, the ability to have the mass testing frequently of the majority of the population with tests that give a result at the point of use. There are dozens of British companies trying to develop these things. The government really has to invest in those things and create the infrastructure to do that. And um, I hope they're doing that, but I wish they would say more um, boldly that that is their objective and make sure they're going to achieve it by the autumn. Uh, in terms of what comes next, Paul Johnson from the Institute for Fiscal Studies has been out this morning warning of a reckoning in the form of higher taxes. Uh, do you think that Rishi is prepared to be the bad, you know, he's currently enjoying a period as, as being the good guy. Is he prepared to be the bad guy and, and a big tax rise is now inevitable? If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Well, I think you will find it's prepared to be tough, but I don't want to... um... Uh, anybody to think I'm a spokesman for him? You know, I know him well. And <laughs> do, you think, do you think? Do you think that ultimately we're going to have to get used to high levels of taxation? Uh, well, I think to some extent, yes, because I think in some ways public expenditure will be permanently higher, and some tax revenues might be permanently lower than this. So the country can carry an extra debt for a long time, but it can't keep adding to the debt forever. And so you do have to then make your finances sustainable. Um, and that will be a major decision for the country. How do you raise taxation? And, of course, it, it's important not to stop the, um, the, the a resurgence of enterprise and innovation in the country. Um, so it's probably too early to say when or how you do that. Many of us will make an argument whenever the country comes to that time that that should be to do with carbon usage that um, the the way to develop the tax system in the future is in line with environmental and climate change objectives, um, and that um, beginning to create our own national version of what really ought to be one day a global, uh, globally agreed carbon tax is, um, or coordinated carbon tax, is the way to go. Um, and just in turn, we've heard this morning, John Lewis closing eight stores, 1,300 jobs at risk. Uh, there's obviously a big concern about uh, young people and the effect that this is going to have on them. Uh, how how bad do you think, obviously you were in government coming out of the, the financial crisis a decade ago. And there was a lot of concern then about uh, young people. How bad do you think this might be for young people this time around? It's terrible for young people. They are the biggest losers economically from um, from this crisis. And I wrote about this a few weeks ago and, and said this is Generation C. You know, we are used to the idea of millennials and Generation Z and so on. Well, welcome to Generation C, the COVID generation, the people who have really lost irreplaceable parts of their education or the uh, formative moments of their careers and the, the availability of, of good jobs in the coming few years. Um, that's really very, very serious damage to people. 
And so a focus on young people is very important. Now, there was a lot about that, of course, in, in Rishi's statement yesterday about the, the kickstart scheme and the bonuses to firms for um, taking on apprenticeships and so on. And I'm sure, I, I imagine the government will want to see how those things go and then put um, uh, and, and not rule out further measures on this when we come to an autumn budget and so on about education and training for the future. I do think that as a society, we ought to all be involved in doing more on this. I hope we can all, you know, I, I believe there should be a massive mentoring scheme where all of us are involved in mentoring five or six young people um, in our own time and from our own resources. Um, and that in addition to that, it's going to be a big part of corporate responsibility in the coming years to, um, to, to take extra measures to bring young people into the workforce. So I, I do think this will require an exceptional response. I've sometimes advocated in the past something as radical as a different tax rate for young people. But I'm told that um, in focus groups of old people, this goes down very badly. Um, but is, but, it, is um, it time? I might return to that issue in, in things that I personally advocate. Quite often you can shift public opinion, though, can't you, when you sort of make a case for it. Is it time for the Tory party to sort of wean itself off the idea of keeping older voters happy and maybe do the right thing by young people this time and, and advocate a, a different tax rate for younger people? Well, a, a government has to, to to serve all the people of the country. But um, so I'm not, I, I don't want to um, be too dogmatic about this. I think raising these ideas just challenges people to um, to think, well, if you're not going to do that, what else are you going to do? Um, and um, so, you know, it's it's worth having the debate. I'm not, I don't want to demand this minute, oh, the government must do this. They've just done a lot and they're spending huge resources, uh, as we've just discussed. But there will have to be, I think, I think we all have to discuss across politics, new ideas for how we help uh, the position of young people in, in the coming months and years. Um, I'm not sure. I think there's some some sort of gremlin on the uh, on the FaceTime line, which means that every so often there's a pause and then you, you you're, it sort of all catches up very quickly and it sounds like you're sort of speaking against the clock. But I think to be clear, it is, it's a technical thing rather than you doing um, a sort of strange intonation. But right. anyway, we'll press Sorry on. Sorry about that. No, yes. it's not well, your fault. I do have strange intonation. Well, there we but, um... <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the added complexity of a... Uh, exactly yeah. right. We'll pull the string a bit tighter between the yoghurt parts and we'll be fine. Um, let's move on then to talk more um, globally with your sort of former Foreign Secretary hat on. And coronavirus has sort of thrown a lot of things up in the air in terms of uh, relationships between different countries, obviously our ability to travel. Um, there's this idea of deglobalization. For so long, we've talked about globalization and and how everything is becoming more international. And then actually we've... Well, we've all physically retreated because we can't travel anywhere at the moment, but also looking now to maybe not being so reliant on China for the goods that we buy, uh, you know, consuming things, uh, buying things which are made more closer to home, even if that ends up being more expensive. Do you think this is a, is a sort of a trend which will outlast the immediate crisis? Uh, yes, I think so. I think there, there was the beginnings of deglobalization even before the crisis. And you can see how new developments in technology might take us in that direction anyway. Um, as, um, as the price of labor is higher in China, well, then, of course, um, it can be more profitable for companies not to have their 
production site of there. And as new technology develops in uh, 3D printing, well, we might find that a lot of manufacturing in the future is closer to home, much more customized to the individual consumer. So these things would have bring some tendency to de-globalization. But then it's a big accelerator of that, that we have this growing split in technology uh, between China and the United States. Uh, of course, Huawei is a is, is the topical example of that. And I think we've got a lot more of that to come and a, an intensified discussion of how we make sure we're not strategically dependent on China in certain key high-tech industries for the future. Um, and, and that's fair enough, I think, because the China wouldn't allow itself to be strategically dependent on us. Um, so I think well, those things are coming now, the challenge is how do you do that at the same time as improving global cooperation on issues we can only deal with as the whole human race? How do you take a tougher line on supply chains and national security on China at the same time as saying, well, we can only make progress on climate change, we can only stop a future pandemic um, if we work together globally? And so I think there are those two very important aspects to policy towards China, uh, stopping strategic dependence on China, but solving global problems with China. So it's not just a case of being hard or soft on China. It's, um, it's more sophisticated than that. It's, what, five years since George Osborne was hailing the golden era with China and describing Britain as Beijing's strongest partner in the West. Did you, did you agree with that at the time? Did you caution against that? Well, that was, I have to point out, after I'd left the government. Um, I was a bit, um, a little bit more cautious, let's put it that way, on China policy and more of a China sceptic. So, I was so did, in favor did, of, um, did they have to wait until you were out of government before they could embrace the golden era? I think it was a bit easier when I was out of the government. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate that difference because, of course, I was much in favor of... Um, uh, more trade with China. And as foreign secretary, I opened new consulates in China and sent more diplomats to China. The objective of expanding commerce with the world's second biggest economy is a good one. Um, however, um, there is this problem uh, that particularly under that has emerged in the last few years, actually, particularly under President Xi Jinping, um, that China's gone in a more uh, ideological direction um, and that it is clearly going, it is developing it, its technology, its surveillance, its uh, uh, the, the relationship between the state and the individual in a fundamentally different way from becoming a more open and democratic society. So um, so I differed a little bit with my old colleagues there, and, and the golden era rhetoric was after I left. I think for all of us, though, now, the situation has moved on. And so it's clearly much harder to um, develop that relationship without conditions than it was even five or six years ago. Um, you talked about you've talked in the past about how much you enjoyed being foreign secretary um it obviously involves quite a lot of travel what was the best and worst bits of all that jet setting well you know how did you how do you survive airplane food sleeping in airport lounges all that sort of thing well you do have to be very uh resilient and you do have to 
you end up eating some very strange things. Uh, <laughs> what, what's course. the strangest thing you had to eat on the on the circuit? Well, I think you know, Koreans love to give you sea slugs, for instance, and um, they're not to a Yorkshireman the most uh, thing you think of. <laughs> you know, that's not what your Sunday roast would really consist of. Um, so I did find some of those things difficult. Uh, of course, there's an exhilaration to the um, that that relentless. Travel. I, I enjoy travel. I've visited, um, I believe, more countries than any foreign secretary ever. Um, it's partly because there are more countries than there ever were uh, before. But I think the physical aspect of diplomacy is still very important. Um, and so, um, you know, I had some remarkable meetings across visiting Brazil and Colombia and really being a foreign secretary went to places like Latin America. I particularly enjoyed re-energizing the relationship with Australia because my Labour predecessors never visited Australia in all the time of the Blair and Brown governments. Um, and I went every year and really tried to get and got that back as a um, thriving diplomatic uh, relationship. So I enjoyed that side of it. The worst side of it is, you know, when you've just arrived in Brazil, you find there's a crisis in Ukraine and you're straight you're on a plane back to, um, to, to, to talk in Brussels straight away. So there is that, um, you're, you're never quite sure where you're going to You're never sure if you're quite in the right place. Um. Yeah, I did wake <laughs> up one morning as Foreign Secretary to, and turned on the, um, you know, the BBC World News to say, um, and, and it said, William Hager has just arrived in, I can't actually remember, I think it just arrived in Rome or something. I, I thought, I'm sure I'm in Geneva. <laughs> and I had to, you know, open the bedroom curtains. No, that is Geneva. Uh, because you start to doubt momentarily when you wake up which country you're actually in. So this is why it's a job you can't do forever, you know, in, in my view. This is why I, I always had it in... Um, my mind, this is what you do for about four and a half, five years and don't push it uh, because you would absolutely wear yourself out and stop being able to do a good job. So I'd always said to David Cameron, after so many years, that's when I leave. Um, and uh, he was always very, um, you know, very understanding and cooperative about that. You mentioned David Cameron there. You described him as the sanest person to have led the Tory party in a long time. How does Boris Johnson compare on the sanity scales? Um, now, another trick question. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, Boris has a different style altogether from <laughs> David Cameron. And um, yeah, David Cameron would still have a strong claim, I think, to be the sanest person to lead the Conservative Party. But Boris Johnson, look, has just won that enormous victory. And he's got his own very different abilities so all credit to him i don't want to, this is uh, why you're in charge of the him. i think this is why you're in charge of the diplomatic service with that um with that answer yes i can wriggle out of any uh, situation <laughs> hopefully if i can't i shouldn't have been the foreign secretary but, um, <laughs> okay David what about cameron was a great he was a great it's a great privilege to work for him you know you could have a rational discussion with him every day without him getting fed up you could argue with him without him sacking you and um, well, uh, the one thing I have written about as uh, a cautionary note from somebody who's now left it all um, on Boris Johnson is uh, you do need powerful ministers around you who you discuss things with. You know, don't make it too centralised. 
and too based on political advisors. You need strong, capable ministers who you can have an argument with. Um, so do you, I mean, it sound, that sounds to me like you think that Dominic Cummings is a bit too powerful and he's got a slightly underpowered cabinet around him? Well, let's say uh, that's something to avoid, something to look out for and avoid, having an underpowered cabinet. <laughs> do you think Dominic Cummings is a positive force in government, though? I don't know. I don't know Dominic Cummings, so I try to, um, uh, and, and will continue to avoid charging in on that. Um, <laughs> obviously, some people find him difficult to work with, others find him inspiring to work with. I don't know him. Um, I will let, let me say one positive thing about him, which is, as I understand it, he's a, a key part of the government having a vision of a science-based future for this country, you know, of, of the, the trebling the funding for mathematics that they've done, of bringing in scientists and people into the universities with fewer limits on visas. If that sort of vision can be made, the post-Brexit vision of this country, if Dominic Cummings can do that, well, all credit to him, because um, that is the way we ought to be going. Well, it's um, fascinating speaking to you. Do you I, w- I just wonder whether you ever miss it. Do you ever regret standing down? There's a, th- there's a theory around Westminster that if you'd stayed in the Commons, you might have even replaced Theresa May back in 2017 when it all went a bit wobbly. Do you, do you ever miss leaving? I don't miss it at all. Um, <laughs> uh, really, at all. I, I believe very strongly that there are different phases of life and that you make the most of them and then you move on. Um, and, uh, you know, just like I loved being at university, but, um, and I was sorry when I, on the day I left Oxford, I remember walking around a bit miserable and I was sorry leaving Oxford. That doesn't mean I want to spend my whole life in Oxford. And so, uh, <laughs> I spent 26 years in the house of commons, you know, uh, did led the party, was foreign secretary time to move on. Uh, while you can still enjoy life in other ways, which I do enormously now, so um, I have to say I don't um, miss it. And, and my former colleagues often say, "You look well," and I say, "Yeah, that's because I'm not hanging around with you lot anymore." <laughs> so, um, how have you just finally? How have you been enjoying lockdown? I remember uh, reading that you'd given up uh, playing the piano because you'd gone on David Cameron's front bench all those years ago. Have you gone back to the piano? What have you been doing during the lockdown? Um, not yet. No, I am now a fanatical um, tree planter. Really, I'm into. Oh, really? wildlife habitats and conservation. Uh, so I've been here with Fionn in our place in Wales, in mid-Wales, um, in a slightly tighter lockdown than um, England some of the time. You can't go to the pub yet. Uh, uh, no. And um, uh, But over the last few years, I've planted with, our, with my team here 6,000 trees. And so to be able to spend the spring in that environment has had its compensations, um, while bearing in mind how difficult it has been for so many other people, as we discussed earlier on. Well, William Haig, it's uh, so good to speak to you, and I'm glad we managed to cover quite a lot. I could have spoken to you for much longer, but I'm conscious that we're already a bit late for the news. So, uh, William Haig, thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. That's all we've got time for on this episode. To listen to the whole Times Radio show, just go to the Times Radio app and click Listen Again. To make sure you don't miss future episodes of the podcast, subscribe on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. And to read more about what we've been talking about on the podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Radio to subscribe. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.